How many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Anybody ever heard of that? Gospel of Thomas? So you know that there are four canonical Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there are many other Gospels, quote-unquote, that are written to try to convey information about the life of Jesus, most of which is, is not accurate. Um, they're written later on. Some are called the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, but some of them have some very interesting stories about Jesus in them. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is one of those, and it has several stories about the childhood of Jesus. Um, in the Gospel of Thomas, when Jesus is one year old, uh, he uh, curses a boy that lives near him, and the boy's body withers, and he ends up dying um, as a result of one-year-old Jesus cursing him. Um, another thing that happens in that gospel, supposedly, uh, is that Jesus, uh, another boy later on when he's older, I think he's five or six maybe, uh, he aggravates Jesus, and there's some discussion of exactly what he does. Does he you know, punch him? Does he run into him? Does he call him names? Whatever it may be. And so Jesus responds to that and curses him and kills him. And then when the dead boy's parents complain about it, Jesus strikes them as blind. Um, and so it's, it's quite an interesting uh, collection of stories there. And I'm confident that those sound strange to you because you've read the canonical Gospels. You've read the four Gospels in the Bible that are inspired, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those miracle stories from the Gospel of Thomas don't sound anything like what you hear in the canonical Gospels. Why? Well, because in the, the real Gospels, when you find Jesus doing miracles, you find him bringing life and bringing healing to people. You, you don't find him destroying and cursing. And that is true until you get to our passage today. So open up to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be. The passage today has this very interesting miracle in it, and it's the last miracle that Jesus does in the gospel of Mark, and it's so different. It's so out of character to what we find of Jesus in his ministry that when we read about this, we should sit up and we should pay careful attention to why he's doing this and what is happening here. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. Now, let me give you a big picture of this passage so that as we go through it, you can understand a little bit of what's happening here. This passage contains the cleansing of the temple. Okay, so if you look down at verse 15, you've probably got a heading in your Bible if it's like mine that says the cleansing of Jesus cleanses the temple, the cleansing of the temple or whatever. So that's where Jesus goes into the temple complex and he disrupts the flow of merchandise and of buying and selling that's taking place there. So that's a very common story, but in the Gospel of Mark, that story is wedged right in between two accounts that tell us about this cursing of the fig tree, this miracle that Jesus does there. Look at verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then he curses it in verse 14, okay? Now you, you go past the temple, cleansing of the temple story, and you go to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, okay? So, the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched right in between 
this story, of the two bookends of this story about the fig tree. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Mark, you know that this sort of sandwich technique, that's what the commentators call it, where there's something in the middle of one story on the outside edges. This sort of sandwich technique happens several times in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, as he's compiling and writing his Gospel, arranges it like this on purpose. And he does this because he wants you to understand the middle story in light of the edge story. So the meat in the middle, you have to understand in light of the bread on the outsides of what's happening. And so we're going to read the center story here in light of the cursing of the fig tree because that's how Mark intends us to read this. So when you think about this whole passage, if the temple story's in the middle, then this entire passage is about the temple. And it makes sense because of what we saw last time. At the very end of our, of our first series, our first sermon in this, Mark chapter 11, look down at verse 11. Jesus enters into Jerusalem that first day, and where does he go? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you're expecting him to return back to the temple. You're expecting him to do something in the temple. He scouts things out, and then on the next day, as we'll see, he comes back in and takes specific actions. Now, if you remember from last week, Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem was very symbolic. You remember this? He did all of these things. He got the, the donkey to ride in on. The people covered the donkey with cloaks. They laid palm trees down. He did all of this to symbolize and to showcase that he was Jerusalem's rightful king, and he was coming into the city. Well, in the same way, I want you to think about what he does in the temple and this cursing of the fig tree as symbols that are meant to teach us about his ministry and about what he's, what he's all about. What he's doing here is pronouncing judgment on the temple. And that's what the the cursing of the fig tree is meant to demonstrate for us, and I'll show you this as we go along, but he's pronouncing judgment on the temple complex and on the leadership, the religious leaders of Israel at this time. And I want you to take careful note of that word judgment, okay? That's significant to what we're going to be doing today. Now, you've probably heard this, and we've even talked about it already, as the cleansing of the temple. That's not really an accurate description of what happens here. I mean, he's not just going in trying to make things better and trying to disrupt the flow of, of uh, commerce in the temple to, uh, to try to get them to stop it. That's not what he's doing. He's not cleansing it. He's showing us, he's demonstrating to us that judgment is going to come on this entire system, including the Jewish leadership, the political leadership. And now what Jesus is showing us is that the temple, the physical temple, will no longer be at the center of God's plans. It won't be significant anymore. Why does he do that? Well, that's what we're going to find out as we go along. Why does he pronounce judgment? We'll find out. So what we're going to see today is three elements of kingly judgment that teach us God's plan for salvation. All right? Three elements of kingly judgment that teach us God's plan for salvation. And the first one of these is the reality of judgment. We don't like to think about judgment. Our culture doesn't like it when people judge other people or when there's condemnation for something. 
But Jesus came not only to bring salvation, and he did come to bring salvation, but if you remember all the way back in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he came to make a dividing line. He came to bring salvation, and he came to bring judgment. Salvation for those who trust him, and judgment for those who reject him. And verses 12 to 14 set up the view that we should take on Jesus' action in the temple. It's a verdict of judgment, not just a reform effort. So at the end of verse 11, we already read this, but we saw Jesus and his disciples go into the temple, and then we saw them head back out of the city in the evening, and they go out to stay a few miles out of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. It's outside the walls. And so naturally enough, the next day, they head back into Jerusalem, which is where everything would have been happening throughout the week. Look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, heading back to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And so as they're walking along this path, going back to the city, Jesus is hungry. We don't know why. We don't know if he didn't get a good breakfast in the morning or what the situation was, but he's hungry. And he looks into the distance and sees a fig tree there. Verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now, here's a fig tree. Let me show you a picture here of a fig tree. You can see pretty, pretty large leaves that are on it. And this text emphasizes that he saw these leaves at a distance, okay? And it emphasizes how important these leaves are to what's happening here, okay? So he sees the leaves, and you can even, like you're looking at this picture, you can see the leaves, but you can't really tell if there's fruit on this tree or not at a distance. And so... As he gets closer, he's hoping that he will find fruit that he can eat on this tree. And figs are pretty good, I will admit. And as he gets closer, that's not what he finds. Verse 13, look there in the middle. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. So it had this show of leaves, but as he gets closer, there's no fruit on the tree, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples took note of that. His disciples heard it. Now, it's important to keep in mind this whole incident is a symbol. It's teaching us something, right? It's not necessarily even about the physical tree that Jesus places this curse on here. The fig tree appears to be healthy at a distance. It looks like things are going well. There's activity. There's leaves growing. It appears to be healthy. But when you get closer, it actually lacks a fruit that will nourish and give life. If you're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, fig trees are often used as symbols of the nation of Israel, and Israel's fruitfulness is a sign of their covenant relationship with God, and their lack of fruit is a sign that they have broken that covenant relationship with God. They have been unfaithful to it. And so for this incident to happen actually makes sense in light of the Old Testament. Let me show you just one text here. Jeremiah chapter 8. This is God talking about the nation of Israel. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. And so this sort of symbol makes sense for us to read this here. Now in Jeremiah's day, the people of Israel and the people of Judah would be exiled, and the temple would be destroyed because of 
this indictment because of their false worship, because of their lack of fruit. And so Jesus performs this action here, I think in light of these Old Testament symbols and images, he does this to show the disciples that the nation of Israel and particularly the worship that is taking place in the temple is unfruitful. It's a show, there's stuff happening, but there's no fruit, there's no life in it. And all of that has come to a head. And in the center of both of these is the temple in Jeremiah and in Jesus's day. Now, if you think about the Old Testament as a whole, I was just reading, I think it was Psalm 78 the other day. And as you read through histories of Israel, as you read through your Old Testament, you see kind of two qualities that God has as he relates to his people. There are more, but there are sort of two dominant ones. You see him express his love and his desire to be faithful to his covenant that he's made with his people. And you see him do that over and over again. But you also see God say, if you don't obey, if you follow other gods, I will bring judgment on you. And you see both of those qualities play themselves out in the Old Testament. In Psalm 78, it goes back and forth. God expresses his covenant love and faithfulness. The people disobey and he brings judgment on them. And it happens over and over again. And you see it again here. And it's clear that the people have once again forsaken God's plans and his purposes, just like they did in the days of Jeremiah. But how exactly have they done that? What have they done this time to forsake his purposes? And that brings us to our second element of kingly judgment, the reasons for judgment. So you've got the reality of judgment. This is something that we see going back into the Old Testament, and it's going to happen again, and it is a part of the ministry of Jesus. And now we get an explanation of the reasons why there's going to be judgment on the temple and on the the leadership of the temple. So they arrive in Jerusalem after this little fig tree incident, and they go straight for the temple. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now, it's important to keep in mind when you read that, Sometimes you may think of the temple as this sort of pretty small little building. There was the Holy of Holies and then a few outer courts, but that's not what it was like at this time at all. The temple complex was huge at this time. It was 1,500 feet by 1,000 feet, and there was this massive outer court where all sorts of things took place. This week, in the life of Jesus is Passover week. In the life of Israel is Passover week. And so we saw last time all of these pilgrims would have been heading into the city to get ready for Passover. And some of the things that would have been happening in the temple, the the pilgrims come in, they can't bring their sheep and their goats with them into the city on the journey. Some of them couldn't. So they expect to be able to buy those, to be able to offer them as sacrifice. At this time, you had to pay a temple tax. It was required. And so they would have gone and they would have wanted to exchange their money, their currency for the type of currency that was accepted as a temple tax. It was due at this time. And so all of that is happening in this space in the outer court of the temple. And it's such a huge space that when Jesus comes in, there's no way he can actually disrupt the entire thing. I mean, it's a massive area, but what he does is no doubt causes a stir. Look at the rest of 15 and 16. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, I know you've read this before, and there, there are several wrong ways to view what Jesus does here. And I want to make those clear so that when we explain why he does this, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be clear to you, okay? He's not attacking the people who are selling and buying simply because they were doing this in the temple and he wanted it quiet and worshipful. It's not what he's doing here. It's not his purpose. And he's not attacking them here because there was some sort of dishonesty going on in the exchange rate or in those selling it. That's not why he does this here. There may have been injustice happening, but that's not the primary reason why he does this. So why does he do it? Well, look at verse 17. He tells us, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. All right. Here's why he does it. What he does here is he pulls two quotations from two Old Testament passages to explain why he does this action, all right? So we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament to understand, and I think this will bring some real illumination to you when you see this. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 56, okay? Isaiah 56, that's where the first one of these is taken, where he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's taken from Isaiah 56, and we'll look at the other one in just a minute. But Isaiah 56, turn over there with me. Isaiah 56. Now, just to set you up for when I read this, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. In this portion of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking ahead, okay? So he's, this is several hundred years before Jesus comes onto the scene. This is even before exile, before Israel is taken away into exile. But what he's doing is he's looking ahead and he's anticipating what it will be like, what the temple should be like in the future. So he's, he's looking very far in advance and saying, this is the ultimate goal of the temple. This is what worship in the temple should look like. He wants that purpose to be realized in the nation of Israel, okay? So this is sort of an idealistic look at where the temple and the worship should be, all right? So let me read verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it who, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You can see that is what he quotes in Mark chapter 11. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what you see in this passage is Isaiah looks ahead to the temple and sees all these different groups of outcasts. You've got foreigners, you've got eunuchs who were not accepted in God's house, you've got outcasts later in verse 8, outcasts of Israel, you've got all these groups of people and he looks ahead and anticipates a time when all of these people will be able to come into God's house and worship the Lord directly and without fear. And that's what he hopes for. And so in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus comes to his temple, that's not what he finds at all. He expects it to be that sort of a place, and it's not that. In fact, what he finds is he finds the Jewish people continuing to keep Gentiles and foreigners outside to keep them from worshiping God as they should be able to. It should be a place for all nations to come. But what has it become? Well, this is where our second Old Testament passage comes in. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7. All right? Jeremiah 7. Back in Mark 11, I'll read this to you, but Jesus says, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this is what it has become. It should be a house of prayer for all the nations, but it has become a den of robbers. These are taken from Jeremiah chapter 7. So this is a fascinating text because at this time, when Jeremiah is writing this, the people of Judah believed that they could do whatever they wanted to morally and ethically. They could act however they wanted to. But if they just came to the temple, and if they still had the temple, they would be good. They'd be approved by God. And you'll see that in this passage. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11. This is called the temple sermon because Jeremiah delivers this in the temple, which is amazing that Jesus quotes from this sermon that Jeremiah gives. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And look what they say. It's like a mantra that they're, they're saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're just trusting, if I can just come to this temple, I'll be good no matter how I live. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes?' 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase here, den of robbers, he's not talking about the exploitation that may have been taking place in the temple with the money changing. He's placing the emphasis here on the word den, okay? This is like a hideout for thieves. I mean, this, you know how this works. Thieves go out and commit their crimes, and then they've got a safe house or a hideout that they go back to, and they think, oh, we won't be caught here. Everything's good here. And that's exactly what the temple had become when Jesus comes to it. It had become a den where the religious leadership in Israel thought, we can do whatever we want, we can manipulate people however we want, we can teach whatever we want, and then if we just go back to the temple will be safe. It was their hideout. It was their den. And here's the bottom line in what Jesus is saying. You can flip back to Mark chapter 11. The temple will not save you. Attachment to this place will not save you. You've perverted its purpose. You are living unethically, and you can't continue to do that and then expect to go to the temple and everything will be fine. It doesn't work that way. And that's important for us to think through, too. We cannot separate worship on Sundays, reading our Bibles. We cannot separate what we do here from issues of justice and morality and ethics in our own lives. Piety on Sunday with worldliness throughout the week is an abomination to the Lord. And that's very clear here. Now, you can imagine when Jesus made this indictment publicly, they knew these Old Testament texts. This did not go over very well. Look back in Mark 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. I bet they were. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. I mean, this really sets the stage, right? I mean, this symbolic action, the words that Jesus says here, this conflict, we, we will see it sharpen over the next few chapters. And ultimately, this is the conflict that leads to Jesus' death. And that death is a major factor in what he's doing here in judging the temple and its leadership. It's not the temple itself that is necessarily the problem. It's not... It's not the problem. What, what's the problem is the way that people have been treating it and what they've been doing in it and treating it like a den of robbers. They failed to realize the divine intention of the temple, what God wanted for it. They've perverted it. And that's the very reason that Jesus came. And in fact, within a week of this, they won't even need the temple any longer. It's done. No longer a purpose in God's plans. And that brings us to our last element of kingly judgment, the rescue from judgment. So you've got the reality of judgment. It will take place, the reasons for it, and then the rescue from it. Look back at verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Go back to Bethany. And then verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
So if you're following the logic of what's happening here and you're making this connection between the fig tree and the temple system and the leadership in Israel, Jesus' attack on that in his words, then you know that this withering of the fig tree portends the end of the temple as the location of atonement of prayer and worship. It's the end of this as the center of life in the nation of Israel, religious life. And so, if you're seeing that, there's a reasonable question. What replaces it? What are they supposed to do for atonement, for prayer, for worship now? Where do they go? It's an appropriate question to ask, and Jesus answers that in verses 22 to 25. Now, it's, it's important to keep the connection between what we've just looked at in these words in mind, because if we don't, this will seem disconnected. Um, Look at verse 23, or 22, I'm sorry. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So it's easy to see verse 23 as a random verse, sort of inserted here on prayer and faith and trusting in God, but don't divorce it from its context, okay? Jesus says, notice here, he says, this mountain. Well, which mountain is he talking about? It's a specific one. It's the temple mount, where the temple is. They would have been walking back and he would have directed their attention to that. And in verse 23, he's describing himself as the one who believes God and who is able to displace this mountain, to cast it aside so that it's no longer significant and no longer important. It's no longer the place of atonement. It's no longer the place of prayer. He's describing here in verse 23 the end of the temple system, and he's describing it, and that will come to an end because of his work on the cross. What happens the moment that Jesus dies? The veil of the temple is torn in two, giving complete access to God through the work of Jesus. He's the one that's going to put an end to the system, to the leaders, and he's going to do that despite its massive influence and despite its massive size. So the point of his words in verses 22 and 23 is trust God even though the temple will no longer be there and no longer be necessary. And because of my work, because of his work, now followers of him will have direct access through him to God, verses 24 and 25. You'll notice he even says therefore in verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. One author said it this way. I thought this was helpful. The temple will no longer be the focal point of God's presence with his people. Now, disciples will be able to come to God anytime, anywhere in prayer. Their forgiveness will be achieved through Jesus And so because of that, now they can turn around and forgive other people. They don't have to seek atonement through sacrifices at the temple. Instead, they come directly to God because the full and final sacrifice has been paid by Jesus Christ. And they have been completely forgiven. 
If you think about this in the broader story of Scripture, God's plan has always been to dwell with his people, hasn't it? I mean, that was the point of the temple. It was for him to be in the presence of his people. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He wanted to be with them. And when you came to the nation of Israel, he gave specific instructions to the people so that a holy God could dwell in the midst of an unholy people. And that was regulated by sacrifices and by laws so that they could receive the blessing of his presence. And here you have a prediction of the end of the temple, but it's not as if because the physical temple is gone, there will be no more temple on earth. That's not the case. There's very much a temple on earth right now. You know this, right? Very much a temple on earth right now. Ephesians chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're the temple. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is one of the great blessings of being united to Jesus Christ. We together as the church are the dwelling place of God. We're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us, he guides us, he instructs us in his word. And that's what the work of Jesus brought about. And he brought it about through the judgment that he brought. We've talked a lot about judgment this morning, and it's not a, it's not a real happy subject. Including the word judgment in all three of my points was a little bit unsettling as I was getting ready to share this passage this morning. But the thing you have to keep in mind when you think about judgment is that God always uses his judgment for his greater purposes. It always fits within his plan. And here, he poured out his judgment on the religious leaders of Jesus' day by giving Jesus into their hands for death. Jesus suffered the judgment that he didn't deserve at the hands of those religious leaders, those sinful men, and through the judgment that was poured out on him, you and I receive grace and we receive life. And because of that, as Ephesians says, we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so my encouragement for us this morning would be, let's not follow the path of the religious leaders and trust in anything other than Christ. Don't trust in our church attendance, how long you've been going here. Don't trust in your good works, in your family history, in your grasp of theology. Don't trust in all these other things and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, just like the Jews were doing in Jeremiah's day. Like a little talisman that keeps you safe and secure. The only place to go to keep from suffering judgment is Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be spared from it. So come to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we are 
in awe of what you've done. We're thankful for your work. We're thankful for the salvation that we receive from judgment, from your righteous judgment. And we pray that you would help us to respond appropriately to this. Help us not to find our security and our salvation and our hope in anything other than you and your work. We pray that you would be our end and our goal and that we would find our rest and our security in you and what you've done. Thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.